0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.
1: Welcome to The Analytic Christian, the channel that helps you explore Christian philosophy and theology. My name is Jordan, and today I'm joined by Dr. William Lane Craig in the middle and Dr. Dale Tuggy on the right. Uh, Dr. Craig probably needs no introduction, but I will say that uh, he has defended uh, in print, in his book on philo- philosophical foundations for a Christian worldview, he's defended a particular model of uh, the Trinity. And so today he's going to be defending uh, Trinitarianism. And Dr. Tuggy on the right has authored a, an article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy where he uh, critiques various models of uh, the Trinity. And he himself is actually uh, a Unitarian So he's gonna be defending that position today. We wanna try and split this conversation into two parts. In the first part, Dr. Craig will be defending, he'll present his view and defend his views. And the second part of the interview will have them switch places. And so Dr. Tuggy will be defending Unitarianism there. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you both so much for joining me. This is a real treat. I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Craig. Uh, First, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Thank you, Jordan.
2: The biblical doctrine of the Trinity comprises two affirmations. First, that there is exactly one God, and second, that there are exactly three persons who are properly called God, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This biblical doctrine of the Trinity is simple, straightforward, and logically unproblematic. And this is the view that I defend. The doctrine of the Trinity as it comes to expression in later creedal formulations, like the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, involves certain aspects that um, either uh, depart from or add to this biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And I have no interest in defending formulations that depart from or add to the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And so it is that
1: biblical doctrine that I um, will defend. One follow-up question about that briefly. Are you referring to something like the procession? So like the son proceeds from the father or something like that, that you might find in these creeds, but you're not interested in defending that. That is
2: correct. That would be one good example of um, a formulation that is added in later creedal formulations of the doctrine.
1: You have a model that you call tripersonal theism. So can you just describe that model of the Trinity for us? Yes, it can be very simply stated. And that
2: is that God is an immaterial, tripersonal being. And that's it. Um, No metaphysical mumbo-jumbo, no exotic relations uh, standing in for classical identity, no constitutional crisis to maneuver. It's a simple affirmation that God is an immaterial tripersonal substance. Now, we can flesh that out a little bit by thinking about ourselves. Uh, I as uh, a soul, am an immaterial personal substance, and my soul is equipped with a set of rational faculties that are sufficient for personhood. In God's case, God is a soul who is so richly equipped in rational faculties that he has three sets of rational faculties, each of which is sufficient for personhood, and therefore he is a tripersonal
1: intellectual substance. Okay. At this point, then uh, I'd like to turn to Dr. Tuggy and welcome again, Dr. Tuggy. You have, yeah, you have published some criticisms of Dr. Craig's model. I know I've listened to some interviews where you offer some critiques. So why don't you go ahead and walk us through, I guess, as many as you'd like, if you'd like to raise several or, or one at a time, however you'd like.
0: Well, I'm a little surprised that Dr. Craig is distinguishing what he calls a simple biblical trinity from the creedal view. I mean, most people that defend it, they just mean the trinity by definition to be whatever the creeds are accurately understood to be teaching. What he said was the biblical doctrine was the claim that there's one God and that there are exactly three persons uh, called God. And that's not a good definition of what the trinity is. That's something that a certain kind of Unitarian could accept. For instance, in the early modern era, Samuel Clark or John Biddle, so they think the one they think there's one God, which is the Father. So that's one claim. They think there are three persons that can be called God, because they believe in the personhood of the Holy Spirit as a lesser being, and they believe in the preexistence uh, of of a Son who's a lesser being. So that type of Unitarian, uh, I call them subordinationist Unitarians. Those would be biblical Trinitarians, as he's defining the term. Um, about his view uh i mean the two problems i have with it are uh first of all i see it as clashing with the clear new testament teaching that the one god just is the father if the one god is the trinity as dr craig knows the one god can't also be the father because the father and the trinity couldn't possibly be one and the same uh so i think we have to pick here between new testament theology and these later traditions now um when i was preparing objections to his views I'm going by the the views in his book chapter and uh, they're rather more elaborate than was just stated. Um, (laughs) One point is, uh, yeah, if God has three sets of rational faculties, that would make God just a triply determined uh, person. That's what it would imply. Would it mean that he's three persons Um, in the past? Dr. Craig has defended a view on which the persons are maybe something like parts of God, although I don't think he wants to use that term exactly. Uh, That's different. Um, I'm not sure why we should think there are distinct persons as a result of one and the same soul having three different sets of rational faculties, right? Why isn't it just one being who can think in three different ways? Um, In his book chapter, he divides up uh, the divine attributes, which I think leads to some really serious problems for his view. And um, you know, I've I've been reading this chapter for years and I, I I've published a couple of times on it. I don't think I quite got it right. I'm still not quite sure I have it right. It's actually very hard to understand. Um, but insofar as I understand it, um, I understand that Dr. Craig explicitly denies that the Trinity, aka God, the one God is a person, but he does want to say that is a self, a subject of consciousness knowledge, will, and action, you know, the thinker, uh, the actor. Um, He says that the the God, the Trinity, is not a self, but he thinks each of the persons are. Um, But then he tells us that God, the Trinity, is uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good because the persons are. okay. But if you have a property because somebody else has the property, something else has it, then you have it. And it seems to me, and this, this is a criticism that goes way back to a piece by Daniel Howard Snyder on Dr. Craig's theory. Um, if you have a property because of somebody else, you have it. You have to be the sort of thing that could have the property. So to be perfect in knowledge and power and goodness, you'd have to be a self. And so it looks like he's got three persons, each of which is a self. And then because they give those qualities that imply divine personhood to the Trinity Uh, the whole in some sense and it looks like he has an extra one so i don't understand why he doesn't need four divine persons like my friend chad mcintosh has in his own unique trinity theory Um, and there's other problems that i could bring up but i think those would be uh, good as a basis for discussion to start with
1: i don't want to step in too much it uh at this point i'd like you all to have a dialogue back and forth I think I heard at least three types of objections there. But in case one isn't touched on, I'll bring it up. But I'll go ahead and turn it over to you two and let you begin talking.
2: All right. There are too many objections there for me to remember. So with your help, Jordan or Dale, uh, we can recall all of them.
0: I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry for dumping. Uh, I mean, the first one is that's that what you said was a biblical Trinity doctrine. That's not sufficient for being a Trinity doctrine because Unitarian views would count. Like there's yes. no idea of a tri-personal God correct. in that biblical doctrine.
2: I don't think that's correct because uh, of the way I formulated the second affirmation, and there you left out a very important word. Uh, I said that there are exactly three persons who are properly called God. And so the use of the term God to describe Uh, Lesser beings would not be a proper use um, in the sense that I'm using it. There are uh, three persons who are properly called God. So the uh, divinity that is ascribed to the Son and to the Spirit is the same as that ascribed to the Father, and that would exclude views like Samuel Clark's uh, and others who thought of uh, Christ as a a lesser being than God.
0: Okay, so maybe you more mean to say that there are three persons that are fully divine or something, and that's why they're called God.
2: Yes, I thought that one might put it that way, um, but I I like to to say properly called God because that focuses on the New Testament passages in which Christ is called God, um, as well as the person of the Holy Spirit. And that when Christ is called God, it's not in some sort of attenuated or diluted sense, such as uh, angels or even the Jewish king uh, might be called Elohim, uh, God in, in Hebrew, but rather it is a proper sense of divinity that is ascribed to the Son as well as to the Father.
0: Full divinity, right. I mean, that's not a view that you see in Christian history, apart from modalists or Sabellians in the first couple hundred years, right? For people well, like Justin, he's a second and lesser God. Yeah. He doesn't I, have I all the divine attributes. Kind of,
2: I think that smacks of subordinationism. And uh, I think, you know, that I uh, think that this element that was introduced in early Christian theology was very deleterious. Um, so, I think a biblical doctrine of the Trinity will affirm that the three persons of the Trinity are equally God.
0: Well, deleterious. I mean, look, uh, you wouldn't have a doctrine of the Trinity if you hadn't had a couple centuries of Logos theory speculations like that's that's how it happens. Um, you don't have Trinitarians until deep into the so-called Aryan controversy.
2: Well, I disagree with that, Dale. I I know you've said that. I Mm -hmm. think that you have Trinitarians uh, in the New Testament. I think Paul was a Trinitarian. I think that the author of Hebrews was a Trinitarian. I think that John was uh, clearly a Trinitarian in the sense in which I've defined that term. Um, Now, certainly this elaborated doctrine of the trinity that comes to expression in the nicene and athanasian creeds isn't in the new testament but that simple biblical doctrine that i explained i think is taught in the new testament
0: yeah i mean in my yeah in my view there's no way you get equal divinity for the Son and the spirit in the new testament and you all which we come back to but i mean otherwise you wouldn't be a unitarian (laughs) that's right that's exactly right um But I mean you have a really weird historical problem which is you think in the New Testament you have uh, co-equally divine persons uh, and I guess the the implication or assumption that they're one God Um, and then you know by the time you get to Justin Martyr this is nowhere to be seen right it's not an origin it's not an ovation it's not in the Sibelians modalist right but now we get it in 381.
2: But that, that again is a historical argument that is not germane to the doctrine that I wish to defend.
0: No, it's it's plenty germane, because if these were obvious implications of the Bible, you'd have knowledgeable people, like I mentioned, holding to these obvious implications. Of the well, Bible, I and you don't. That, uh, so that's a sign that something's wrong. Now, we have to talk about passage by passage, obviously. Exactly. Author by exactly. author. Exactly. But this is how you know something is wrong when it pops up in around 381 and a little bit before and you don't have it really in the intervening period well maybe that's not an obvious meaning of the New Testament doctrines. that's a question to be decided by
2: New Testament theologians and exegetes I, I think that mm-hmm. some of these early uh, Christian apologists like Athanagoras Justin Martyr um, tatian and so on were misled by this logos Uh, Christology that they inherited from Middle Platonism, Uh, and I am not at all supportive of that strand within
1: Christian theology. Let me jump in here. I think we'll talk more about the biblical evidence when Dale goes, because I'm sure that's going to be some of his reasons for holding to Unitarianism. So let's shift to his other objections. The second one that I recall was if Dr. Craig's model is correct. Why is it that there are, um, why isn't it that there's just there's actually three different ways that God's thinking? Is that did I characterize that right? I think he said why isn't yeah. that just one being just thinking three different ways? Why is it actually three different right. persons?
2: Um, it seems to me that what Dale has described there is a human person suffering from multiple personality disorder. Um, In multiple personality disorder, you have a single person, but this manifests itself in different personalities, uh, some of which may be known to the other personalities, others might be hidden. Um, And that's not at all the view of the Trinity that I'm suggesting. I'm saying that just as I have a set of rational faculties that are sufficient for personhood— god has three such sets of rational faculties each sufficient for personhood and for so his god personhood. Is not a single person with multiple personality disorder he is
0: three persons in one substance yeah it's it, the faculties make the owner of the faculties a person so if you have three uh, you just have again you have a person who's over determined twice more to be a person If I uh, could walk in two different ways, I would have three faculties of walking. You know, say I sprout some legs in the front and I sprout some legs in the back. So I can walk in three ways. Um, My being a walker is overdetermined twice. But that doesn't make me three different walkers, right? So why would having three mental faculties make me three different thinkers? It doesn't make any sense.
2: It is these rational faculties that give rise to properties like uh, personal agency, intentionality, self-consciousness, freedom of the will, and, and so forth. And so the idea of a tripersonal substance seems to me to be quite perspicuous. It's very different than a single person who has these multiple personalities. At least that's the model, and so you would need to show that that is somehow incoherent or that it reduces to this multiple personality disorder of a
0: single person. And it does I think that would be uh, difficult to do. Is, is it your view that the person's like supervene on the faculties or something? No,
2: well, I'm not sure how to describe that term. What I said is that the the each set of faculties is sufficient for personhood. Um, but whether you regard this as a relation of supervenience or not, I'm open. I'm open to argument.
0: Um, I don't have a particular view. But those Dr. Craig, those faculties are sufficient to make the owner of the faculties a person. That's that's just what you mean by mental. Well, faculties. or in this case, tripersonal. Either personal or tripersonal in the case of God. So it's not so you know, faculties one, faculties two, and faculties three, they don't just make the one soul a person thrice over. They may they result somehow in three different persons. Yeah. So then it must be, it's not the soul itself, which has each fact, uh, it must be a part of the soul or something, right? Well, now that's
2: a really, really interesting question. As you know, I have uh, suggested the idea that we could think of the persons of the Trinity as parts of God. It seems that each one is not the whole of God. Could they be, um, could they compose God together? And again, I'm open to this. Um, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity doesn't take a position on that. That's a philosophical question that should be open to exploration and discussion.
0: Okay. Well, did I? But did I get your view right, Dr. Craig? That uh, the Trinity slash God is not a person, and each of the that is a self, and uh, a right, and each it, of the it's three it's is
2: personal. So it's not a single person. God is not a
0: single person. I'm not a
2: Unitarian.
0: God is not a single person. Yeah. Right. I understand the view, but then you also say that the Trinity gets to have features like omniscience, omnipotence, and omnibenevolence, but that implies being a person. Only conceptually, just a person could have those properties.
2: It it implies being personal, but it doesn't imply being a single person. Uh, uh, An immaterial substance that is tripersonal is going to be Conscious, have volition, and could well be omniscient, um, and all the rest. Um, so those kind of attributes do require that this intellectual substance
0: be personal, but not one person. It can be tripersonal. It seems to me that you're you're really talking about predicate borrowing, not property borrowing. like literally for you, it's the persons that are persons and therefore are omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent. And then you're saying, uh, in virtue of having a part, which is literally those things, the whole can be said to be those things. So it's two different uses of a predicate. Is that right? You, you've talked in the past about property borrowing, but I don't think that makes any sense because it implies that the whole is a person, which you deny.
2: Yeah, I don't see that it does do that. It, it requires that the whole is personal, Uh, If God is omniscient, then he must be personal. But I don't see where one can make the inference that God is a single person. But what you mean by personal is you
0: mean having parts which are persons.
2: Uh, I mean having intentionality, will, self-consciousness, and so forth. And a soul that is so richly endowed that it has three centers of
0: self-consciousness, intentionality, and will— um, is a personal being yeah i mean you're you're sliding around between properties of the parts and properties of the whole and it seems to me that when you deny that the whole is a person you are thereby denying that it that it is perfectly good perfect in power and knowledge and um i mean you're you, you, yeah that's i mean it seems it seems to me that for you god is an it no it's an he's it personal. persons <laughs> it's a they he's he's not an it he's, why call him he why call him he? Oh, well, I think that
2: is a reflection of our Judeo-Christian uh, heritage that, uh, as you rightly remark, in the Old Testament, God is often referred to as Father, and the pronoun he is, is used of God the Father. So this is um, part of our heritage. But I think that God is, strictly speaking, tripersonal, not
0: just one person. But tripersonal doesn't imply being a person, and that's why it makes no sense. Right. You know, a, a group of three friends is tripersonal, but you don't refer to it as he, not literally. Right, and, and what right. gives unity in this case is that it is
2: one soul. It is one intellectual substance that is tripersonal. It is not a group of people
0: like the three friends. The substance, yeah, it has parts, each of which is personal. I don't know what to make of this, I'm not this calling the Trinity of soul. to that.
2: I'm
0: soul. Open to that. Um, yeah.
2: But that's not an essential in- part of the model.
0: Yeah, me- I mean, indeed, it, Dr. Craig, it's part of Christian tradition to refer to God as a he. You know, he has a proper name in the Old Testament. He's the father right. in the New Testament. But right. it doesn't fit your view. The, the proper literal reference of a personal pronoun is a person. And you don't think the Trinity is a person. That's right, that's modalist a, talk, or oneself trinity talk, well, and, um, or Unitarian talk.
2: Yes, um, and in the Old Testament, as I say, uh, in the monotheistic tradition, God is frequently referred to as he, and conceived of uh, under the metaphor of being a father. So that's quite right. Um, I'm not saying that the References of the word God in the New Testament are to the Trinity, except in some very derived sense that wasn't in the minds of the authors. Typically, okay, let as you him. know, when, they, when the New Testament authors used the word theos or God, they typically had reference to the Father. Right. That was their Jewish heritage. Right. Um, but not always. Um, There are passages in the New Testament where Christ is also called Theos or God um, without any sort of differentiation or uh, diminishment of his deity with
0: respect to the Father's. Well, but Dr. Craig, it's not a New Testament doctrine that you can only be called God if you have a divine nature or if you're fully divine. like Jesus himself no, points out in John 10
2: called God. I,
0: I qualified there that. is no doctrine of being properly called God like that in the New Testament, right? Like Jesus says in John 10, you know those to whom the Word of God came can be called God's. He's referring to either humans or angels depending on how you interpret that psalm. So we know we know that God the word God is ambiguous going into the New Testament. Um, but still the overwhelming usage of the word God, the word theos for the Father, I think shows us their assumption that they are one and the same. I think that's best explained yes, by well, that.
2: I'll, I'll disagree with that later on in our conversation.
0: Yeah, but I mean, your, your view that there's some kind of uh, implicit yet to be worked out uh, triune God doctrine in the New Testament is just not plausible. I mean, there is no controversy about core theology in the New Testament. There are Everywhere Trinity theories go, the Jews and Muslims and other monotheists complain that, "Hey, is that really monotheism?" Right? You don't have controversies like that in the New Testament or even in the in early Christianity, right? Between God being one and three, it just and doesn't happen. The, it would have authors, happened if that's what they were pushing.
2: The authors of the New Testament were Jews, and they saw the necessity of. Uh, um, a modification of jewish monotheism to include christ and the holy spirit
0: but they never and say that right john jesus uh, talks about the shema in mark with, uh, right and just accepts it the way his jewish interlocutor does there mm-hmm. are no passages in which the apostles take it to the jews and correct them that their monotheism is too simple or you know too simplistic or something like that now we have to understand that god is tripersonal otherwise god wouldn't be perfect like it just doesn't happen the what, things that were controversial were jesus and messiahship and the gentiles and the law and you do see controversies about those
2: yes but what you have in the new testament are affirmations not only that the father is god but that christ is god and that the holy spirit is god and these passages are not using the word God in some sort of a diluted or diminished sense, but in the same sense that God the Father is called God. So well, I think can, the reader
0: he, can see that's not true, Dr. Craig, by the fact that they just gleefully imply limits on the Son and they never stop to correct us and say, oh, this is only his human nature or something like that, right? He dies, whereas God is essentially immortal. He doesn't know the day or hour where God is essentially omniscient. Yes. He's a mediator between God and man, something which God could never do. Um, well, remember now. They just, they just put these limits out there. He's a man who heard from God, heard the truth from God. It's all just put out there with no embarrassment. And that he, shows that they weren't pushing the kind of deity of Christ uh, doctrine that you're mentioning. I, I don't think it shows that
2: at all. Of course, the New Testament authors affirm the humanity of Jesus. These his true humanity, but they also affirmed his deity and they called him God in the same way that the father is called God.
0: And so no, they I never call him have... the one true God. Mm-mm.
1: Hold on, Dr. Tuggy. I'm going to stop right here because we've only got about two minutes left before we end this first half. And there was an objection that I wanted to hear Dr. Craig's response to that it started to be touched on, but we didn't get to. So here was the objection Uh, Dr. Tuggy raised um, this worry that you actually, Dr. Craig, your model has four divine things uh, Um, rather than only three. I hope I've characterized that correctly, Dr. Tuggy. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to be the worry that you got four divine things here. So how might you respond to that, Dr. Craig? Yes, I think
2: that's clearly wrong because I affirm that there is one immaterial being who is tripersonal. So it's not three, it's not four beings. There is one immaterial, tripersonal, intellectual substance. So it's clearly monotheistic.
0: But Dr. Craig, I assume you agree with the tradition that the persons are numerically distinct from one another, another. So there's your three other things. It's just that you think those three things compose a fourth. Um, And each one of those things is fully divine, right? Those three things. Yes, each of the persons is divine,
2: but there's only one substance there. There is just the single intellectual substance that is God. So I agree with theorists like William Hasker, for example, that the three persons all share one concrete divine nature and that is this soul or intellectual substance that is tripersonal in nature. And yeah, it's I, an mean, I have a hard time figuring out if, on your
0: view, all three of them are equally divine, or if none of them is equally divine because only the Trinity uh, is. Yeah, you don't need to worry about the the Trinity here. Um,
2: just think in terms of a single tripersonal substance, and that
0: will get the view. Um, but Dr. Craig, a person is by definition a substance, right? An Aristotelian first substance.
2: Um, Surely you agree with that. Persons, And I think that is because for most of us, well, all of us, we are substances. We are intellectual substances that have one set of rational faculties sufficient for self-consciousness, um, intellect, intentionality, and will. But in the case of God... He is a much more richly endowed soul, so he is one substance, but he's tri-personal,
0: whereas we are unipersonal. Are the persons divine properties? If they're not, you seem to be saying the persons are not things; they're not individual entities. Is that what well, you're they're saying? They're not substances, I would say. Um, I'm sorry. They're not substances,
2: I don't think, unless you think that. Substances could be parts of other substances, and I'm I'm open to instruction on that point.
0: Um again, well, yeah, usually we think that proper parts are things, you know. Hmm. Usually we think that proper parts are things, so they're substances. Like you do know, I, do I think proper parts are things? I mean, that's Except- how we normally think about proper parts, right? If this brick is a proper part of my house, that presupposes that the brick is a thing, it's a substance.
1: Well, it's a subject
0: of properties.
1: I,
2: I don't think that you you heard of the doctrine of arbitrary, undetached parts. There, there are things that are parts that aren't individual, standalone substances in that sense. And so it's not clear to me that saying that God is tripersonal implies that we have three substances. There's only one intellectual substance there— but it's just incredibly richly endowed. Okay, I mean, I, I don't see why it matters why we call point. the person substances off, or Tuggy not. I'm going to cut
1: you to shift to the, to the next section, because we're at the 32-minute mark, and we've only got Dr. Craig for one hour. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead and turn now to your view, Dr. Tuggy. You'll get to defend it in, in a little bit more detail here. So first, why don't you explain uh, what what is Unitarianism?
0: So a Unitarian Christian theology is anyone on which the one true God is the Father alone. So the Old Testament Yahweh turns out to be one and the same as the one Jesus prayed to as our Father in Heaven. Jesus for us is a man, a human person, who is God's unique Son and Messiah. And we agree with all clear New Testament teachings about him, such that he died for our sins, that he was raised to immortality by God, that he was exalted to God's right hand, where he now, among other things, is the unique mediator between God and us. And in general, we want to interpret difficult and unusual New Testament passages, which are often the favorite apologist passages, by the way, Philippians 2, John 1, Colossians 1. We want to interpret the more difficult passages by the more numerous and the clearer ones. So that's what it is. It has nothing to do with Unitarian Universalism, by the way. That's why I call it Unitarian Christian view. It's a Bible-motivated view.
1: Okay. Now, what are some of your reasons for holding this view? Obviously, the, the data from the New Testament, I know that you, you think that that's a reason. You can lay that out in more detail, specific yeah. verses if you want. But if there are other reasons of, as well, go ahead.
0: Well, I mean, it's a whole bunch of things about the New Testament, right? In John 17, 1 through 3, Jesus prays to the Father and calls him the only true God. right? Dr. Craig has authored a textbook for kids on logic, so he knows how you analyze a statement like that. Says that uh, the Father is true God, and for anything whatever, if it, it's true God, only if it just is the Father. Um, there's two claims that God, uh, God is uh, sorry, the f- God is the Father is God, and that nobody else is. Those are the two claims that are being made there. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just that passage; it's all over the New New Testament. It's usually an assumption; it's not a point of dispute in those times. So it's far more often assumed than it is stated. Um, you know, lest you think that Jesus is God in the same sense that the Father is, multiple times in the New Testament, and there's nothing unclear about these passages, the Father is referred to as Jesus's God. And it's said that Jesus has is under the same God that we are under, which is something that God could not do. Right? He does a bunch of things God can't do. You know, he's tempted. God is essentially immortal, whereas Jesus dies. Uh, God can't be his own mediator, but Jesus is the mediator between God and us. Um, there's a lot of other things about the New Testament. The pattern of worship, I think, better fits my view than Dr. Craig's. There is nowhere in the New Testament where there's presupposed worship of the Trinity. It just never happens. What there, and there's also no worship of the Holy Spirit, which is contrary to what you would expect. What you see instead is that the primary and ultimate recipient of worship is the Father. Oh, and also Jesus, especially after his uh, exaltation to God's right hand is also worshiped revelation four. compare that with revelation five and Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus is worshipped to the glory of God the father right God is not worshipped to the glory of somebody above him um, you know just the way it uses uh, the terms of uh, God that we hear we have the term God the father in the New Testament we don't have the term God the Trinity we don't have the term God the son we don't have the term God the spirit Um just think about the fact that there is no term at all that it was then understood to refer to the Trinity. That's a dead giveaway. They didn't believe in the Trinity, right? The very first thing they would do is they would come up with a word by which to refer to this tripersonal God that they believe in, not only its parts, right? So I'm not, I'm not just making a point here about the word Trinity later on in the fourth century towards the end. Sometimes they use the word God to mean the Trinity, right? That would be good enough. You just coin a new usage of the word God that doesn't happen in the new Testament. There is no new Testament word phrase, title name that was then understood to refer to a triune God. And that's because it's from a later age. Um, I already mentioned the kind of unqualified, unembarrassed implications of limits on the sun. The just endorsement of core Jewish theology and no claim that, you know, it's horribly deficient. It has a God that's not really perfect or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's good enough for me. I also already mentioned that um, you don't see a tripersonal God doctrine in early Christianity until roughly after the year 350. By the time of Augustine, it's everywhere. In 350, it's nowhere. You have Logos theorists, and then you have the more um, modalist sympathizers like Marcellus of Ancyra. And that's what you had going back to the late 100s. And by the way, there were some people with views like mine running around back then. They were call, historians called them dynamic monarchians. Uh, but the dynamic monarchians and the logos theorists—they're both Unitarians in the sense that they believe that the one God just is the Father alone and not anybody else. Now uh, they have lesser divine being as the Lagos and, and a yet lesser divine being as the spirit. But yeah, they're still they're still Unitarians. I mean, the most famous American Unitarian. Uh, the pastor uh, named uh, Channing, he held the pre-existence. And I think he held the personality of the Spirit, too, but I'm less sure about that. Um, so, look, it's a, it's a later view. Uh, it's a view that you only really see in the fourth century. It clashes with the New Testament. How? The New Testament identifies the one God with the Father. Any such Trinity theory um, identifies the one God with the Trinity, and those can't both be true because the Father is not the Trinity. Uh, and just to say one, one more consideration, God is competent when God reveals something such as that God raised Jesus from the dead on the, on that one Sunday, when he reveals it, people actually believe it. Okay. So if he revealed that God is triune in the first century, you ha- you would have people in the first, second and early third century believing it, but you don't have those people. Um, I've I've spent about two decades now reading all the extant sources, and uh, it's just not what you would want to be there as a Trinitarian. In fact, the Nicene view, you know, developed as the controversy went on. You don't have a triune God in 325 when they're just arguing about the status of the Logos. You do, I think, have a triune God presupposed in the very similar statement from 381, Although you have to read between the lines because they were very gun shy about introducing new language. Right. But right after 381, everybody's running around talking about a triune God. People like Augustine, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, But not before that. And that's because that was new. Right. And God, we know that God didn't reveal it um, because Christians are just on their own to make their best of this language. You had imperial enforced language. And uh, here in 2022, we're still trying to figure out, you know, how best to understand this claim that the one God is three, quote, persons or hypostases in one usia substance or essence, right? Dr. Craig has a view about that. It's fairly creative and, in a sense, well thought through, but it's contrary to, you know, equally developed views by Mike Ray or, um, Peter Van Inwagen or Brian Leftow, right? We're all just on our own trying to figure this out. God didn't reveal it is why. It's it's a later Catholic, Catholic theory and Protestants are better off without it because the New Testament makes better sense on its own.
1: Okay, we've got about 20 minutes left. I know of at least two reasons you gave there. So I'm going to mention these one at a time. And if I leave one out, Dr. Tuggy just will throw it in. Uh, so the first reason I think you were getting at was there's no name for this trinitarian God in the New Testament. We have, uh, yeah. Did you want to say something, Dr. Craig?
2: Yes, I don't think that that's the key point. If, if I may take the uh, bull by the horns here, yeah, go for it, um, mm-hmm. uh, Jordan. Uh, the the linchpin of the Unitarian argument is that the statements in the New Testament that the Father is God are to be construed as identity statements. And so Dale will say again and again that the New Testament identifies the Father as God. Now, I think there's two things wrong with that uh, statement. First of all, the ancients uh, in general, and the New Testament authors in particular, did not have a grasp of the modern relation of identity. This is something that evolved centuries later, Uh, and so when uh, interpreters impose upon these New Testament statements a modern grasp of the relation of identity, they are anachronistic in their hermeneutics and are imposing meanings upon these writers that they did not themselves assert. Secondly, these same authors uh, also assert not simply that the Father is God, but that Jesus Christ is God. They make the same sort of statements about Christ, and therefore these cannot be identity statements that the Father is God. These are predications of divinity of, of the Father, and likewise of the Son. So when you look, for example, in the New Testament at the Johannine writings, it's not just apologists, it is virtually every Johannine scholar and commentator who thinks that, according to John, Jesus Christ was God. John 1.1 opens the gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. No man has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So twice in the prologue, John refers to Jesus Christ as God, and then in the climactic chapter of the gospel of john 20 and verse 28 you have the appearance to thomas and the 12 where thomas makes his ringing confession to jesus my lord and my god and jesus blesses thomas for his confession of faith these are the christological bookends of the gospel of john and Every New Testament commentator that I know of thinks that in John's view Jesus Christ was unequivocally and fully God. And then in 1 John 5:20 John says, "We are in him who is true and in his son Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life." So just as John says, in 17:3, uh, that the Father is the uh, true God. So he says in 1 John 5:20 that Jesus Christ is the true God. These are not identity statements; these are predications of full divinity to the Father and to the Son. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we find other New Testament authors making similar affirmations. For example, Titus.
0: 2, Maybe we 13. should pause there. That's a, you. You just put out a whole bunch of points that I want to address, if that's okay. I. Apologize for interrupting, but um, yeah,
2: go. You can go. Okay, hey, that uh, doesn't complete the biblical evidence for, yeah,
0: in your view, the epistles and so on also teach the deity of Christ.
2: Yes, uh, yeah. five New Testament authors um, affirming that Christ is God and yeah, that, i mean to me this is, is fatal a, for unitarianism
0: this is a different debate really i mean you're changing the subject from the trinity no, no, to the grant I, 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 these
2: aren't proof texts of the trinity yeah they are, but they're 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 fatal for unitarianism
0: no Christ absolutely not time. so that, i mean these these are these are paradigm cases of taking difficult texts and rare texts and making them the centerpiece of your theology as dr craig knows there are translation difficulties in two of those passages the titus and the first john one Um, And I would also say the same about John 1. If you want to know why I agree with John 1 and why John 1 doesn't present any problems for my view, you can check out my long YouTube lecture called What John 1 Meant. And in brief, Dr. Craig is bringing in the assumption that has messed up all the readers since the Logos theorists, which is the assumption that the Logos is supposed to be the same person as the man Jesus, but this is not said. This is something that's brought to the text as an assumption. And when you view it in, in uh, terms of first century uh, wisdom wisdom uh, literature, there's a long history of that at that point. And they basically equate God's word with God's wisdom. And as uh, certain scholars have said, we don't have time to get into this, uh, it's basically a comment. It's a Jewish midrash on Genesis 1 using Proverbs 8. And what it's saying is that God's wisdom by which he made all things, which is being personified here, this fully came to earth in the man Jesus. And so it's not really a traditional incarnation referred to when it says the word became flesh. Now, that, this claim that the ancients didn't understand uh, the concept of numerical identity, what's true is that the ancients didn't have a kind of logic that would treat identity as a relation, a very weird relation that a thing can only stand into itself. But I think uh, every human has this concept. It's part of the rock bottom conceptual tools that we work with. Uh, And you see it just when, um, for instance, readers of a narrative collapse together the characters. So you realize that Abram isn't somebody and Abraham is somebody else, right? Abraham just is Abram. They're the same man, right? But they're also the same thing because every man is a thing. So they, they can understand, right. And if you apply, uh, the indiscernibility of identicals, say you're a juror, you know, uh, the Boston Strangler did thus and such on a certain day, but the person who's accused, uh, was in a different place on that same day. Right. So therefore the Boston Strangler is not identical to the accused. They're showing that they have, they do have a grasp of the concept, even if they don't really have the words and the formal logic to talk about it. Um, If you, if you, if you had an extreme view in philosophy, like you just, you know, like, uh, identity is incoherent. It makes no sense. It's unintelligible, right? Then you would express their view as that the father and Yahweh are the same God. Then that's, that's how you'd express. Now I think, and I think Bill would agree that would imply that they're the same period, that they're just one and the same. Um, yeah, my Lord and my God, uh, Look, I mean, let's look at the end of John. He tells you that the whole point of it is this, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Not that you believe he's God or that God is multipersonal. right? Also, just around the same part of the book, um, Jesus says that, don't hang on to me. I'm about to ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Uh, is Thomas calling Jesus my God? Maybe. Uh, because we know from this book that beings other than God can be referred to as God. However, a big theme of this book is that God is in Christ, as Paul says, reconciling the world to Himself. The Father in me does His works. You've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, etc. And so you can take this as being, uh, even though He's literally saying it to one person, to Jesus, my Lord and my God, that He's recognizing Jesus as His Lord. And he's recognizing uh, the God, the father who's at work in him. So he'd be, he'd be giving the early Christian uh, uh, confession. Like you see in the epistles in various places that there's one God and that there's one Lord. That's a different way to take it either way. It's not really a problem. It doesn't require the deity of Christ.
1: Okay. Let me stop you there, Dale. Uh, I want to give some time to Dr. Craig because several times you've kind of cut him off and he's not getting to talk as much. So Dr. Craig, you can respond to the point about John 1 and the, the sure. ending of John 1. I
2: think this simply illustrates the strained exegesis to which the Unitarian theologian is driven. Johannine scholars, commentators recognize that the Logos in John 1 is then the, is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God, who dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son From the Father. So yes, uh, John does believe Jesus is the Son, but the Son of God for John is divine, just as the Father is divine. He even calls him, as I said, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. And it's just silly to think that Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, is talking about God, the Father, at work in Jesus rather than addressed to Jesus. This is addressed to Christ. So every Johannine commentator that I'm aware of, from Rudolf Bultmann to Bart Ehrman, those who don't believe in the deity of Christ themselves recognize that John certainly believed in this. Um, And I'm willing to go to the mat on any of these verses to... Uh, argue in detail that this is the correct exegesis of these verses in contrast to the kind of extreme views that the Unitarian theologian is is driven to. And this is just part of the evidence, as I say. There's a multiplicity of these passages throughout the New Testament uh, by uh, four or five different authors all affirming that Jesus is God in the fullest sense that uh, one can imagine equal to the Father. So I think that the, the it shows that we should not take these statements as identity statements. The identity of indiscernibles wasn't discovered until centuries later. The only place in the ancient world where this is intimated is in Aristotle's topics, where he has a couple of sentences, but those were overlooked and soon forgotten, and so we cannot assume that when the New Testament authors say that the Father is the only true God, and also say that Jesus Christ is the true God in eternal life, that they are making identity statements in the modern sense of the word. Uh, they are more probably making predications of full and uh, complete divinity to
1: both the Father and the Son. Okay. Uh, Dr. Tuggy, if you want to comment on that, you can. I'd also like to squeeze in, if if at all possible, the the remaining text that Dr. Craig was going to mention besides John. I, I would like to mention a couple of those because
2: yeah, really yeah, go ahead. Decisive uh, Titus two thirteen refers to Christ as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and Second Peter one one similarly refers to Christ as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Sharp's rule that governs these grammatical constructions, where you have a definite article plus a common noun, the conjunction and, and another common noun, shows that there is a single referent to both of those common nouns. They refer to the same thing, in this case, Jesus Christ. He is called our great God and Savior. Similarly, in uh, he- Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, God the Father addresses the Son as God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then he calls him Lord as well and attributes creation to him. Uh, and he's quoting there from Psalm 45 in the Septuagint, where it is a what's called a vocative, uh, a form of address yeah. where it is addressed to the son as God.
0: Right, who uh, has a God over him. Right. Yeah, no, I mean no, the, Dr. Craig, this would all be germane God. if it was a New Testament doctrine that you can only properly be called God if you're fully divine or if you have the divine nature. But that's not self evident. It's not a New Testament doctrine. Now about John one Well again, now John,
2: you, you assert that confidently,
0: but I I, I repudiate that.
2: I'm using I the do word assert com- that
0: confidently. It's just like it's a lexical fact about the New Testament. God, what is it? God? God is not only correctly applied to somebody that has a divine nature in the New Testament.
2: Yeah, look, when I use the Just word like the properly, I, I'm careful about how I'm using the word that he is properly called God. I mean he is called God in the full sense of that term, not in the sense in which the word could be applied to a principal angel or a Jewish king or something like that. When right the, when when Titus and Second Peter say, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, this is not some kind of diminished divinity
0: that they're ascribing to, to Christ. I mean, honestly, you're just begging the question. You're kind of pounding the table. Surely this can't be a lesser kind of divinity, but, you know, the word God in that time is just more flexible, right? I mean, we can look at a book like this at all the usage of God in the New Testament. It's all compatible with my views, now about John one, again it's kind of subject changing to the deity of Christ away from the Trinity. You don't get the Trinity, right? Suppose we understand John one like you understand it, okay? So then John one would mention the Father. That's the first God mentioned. The second God in John one one would be the Son, and then it would be saying that God created all things through the Son, which is a logos theorist type of view. Okay, well that that doesn't mean the Son is divine in the same sense that God is divine. It rules it out. Because the biblical God is the ultimate source of creation. He's not somebody through, through whom somebody uh, farther back, so to speak, did it. It's not just an instrument of creation. He's the ultimate source of creation. You wouldn't be the ultimate source of creation if somebody else did it through him.
2: There, so it fits I, I,
0: Lagos theory, in a sense, the, 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 thing, the interpretation that you think is obvious. Again, I've got a long argument about this. Feel free to just say, ha-ha, all biblical scholars disagree. The argument can stand on its merits, but your your interpretation doesn't fit the Trinity. There's no Trinity in that passage. It, it's it not an argument
2: for the Trinity. This is an argument against Unitarianism, which claims relevant, that God though. the Father alone is God. When, in fact, John believes that the son is equally god and as i mentioned before that, some some unitarians god. believe in
0: preexistence and that god created the world through this preexistent son that's what some unitarians think like samuel clark and john biddle so it's not an argument yes. against unitarian theology
2: the ascription of deity to christ is i'm not arguing here from preexistence but from What you talked about before, that it is not simply God the Father who is called God in the New Testament. Jesus is explicitly and repeatedly called God in contexts where
0: it has no diminishment of his divinity. Rarely called God, mostly in hard-to-interpret-and-translate passages, and also there's some textual problems. Which the vast
2: majority it's not not like he's called God all over the
0: place in the New Testament. Let's let's be honest to the evidence.
2: To be honest with the evidence, the vast majority of commentators and New Testament scholars agree that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to as God. And you are in a decidedly minority position, especially with respect to the Johannine literature. Now, I don't think that we want to just count noses. I'm not appealing to authority here, but I am saying that if one finds um, these passages for the deity of Christ unconvincing, then what your, I, I think that you need to say that that probably has something to do with your own biases, because the vast majority of New Testament scholars disagree with you. They think these passages do ascribe
0: full divinity to Jesus. Well, in the words of Ronald Reagan, there you go again. Uh, if we were arguing, <laughs> Dr. Craig, if we were arguing uh, in the early Reformation times, right, any any Reformation doctrine you care to mention, some other learned person could come along and say, all scholars disagree with that. What's wrong with you? It's obvious. How dare you hold that view, right? But then no. if, we, if we were too impressed by these arguments, we wouldn't have Reformation. Right? This is just a Reformation issue to me and to mm. biblical unitarians like myself
2: well we need to get down and dirty and do the exegesis of these passages yeah uh, we accept of, that burden uh, yeah. what i say about titus two thirteen and second peter 1 1 i think that their granville sharps rule that i explained about the construction of an article a common noun a conjunction and a common noun take a single referent
1: um
0: why Absolutely. is it you think a second lesser being couldn't be called our great God? I mean, that's what Origen thought. That's what Tertullian thought.
1: All right. Let me jump in really quick. Dr. Craig, you can answer Dr. Tuggy's last question. We're at the one hour mark. So once you answer it, we will wrap up.
2: Obviously these passages need to be read in their context. And I think in context, they are passages in which, um, doxologies are offered to Christ, worship is offered to Christ. Um, he's, he's treated as fully divine. Uh, as Paul says in Philippians, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, so I, I think that over and over again, we have deity affirmed of Christ in a full and undiminished sense. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, you can go ahead and, you, Dr. Tuggy, you can say whatever you'd like to say to wrap up, and uh, we'll end.
0: I mean, I know we're out of time. I'll just say, yeah, I wish we had time to talk about Philippians too. That's another unusual, in fact, one of the hardest to interpret passages in the whole New Testament. Although notice there that Jesus is given his, his position of being worthy of worship to the glory of God the Father, and that he dies, which is something God can't do. Uh, in brief, like some scholars, I take the passage to be about the man Jesus, as it says at the start of the passage. I know traditionally it's it's viewed as an incarnation text, but yeah, I mean, we think these things should all be uh, interpreted in context, in the first century context, context of the chapter, the book, the author, the whole New Testament, first century. That's why we hold these views.
1: Dr. Craig, would you like to say anything to conclude the discussion?
2: Well, only to say that this debate will be continued in a four views book in which Dale and I uh, will have chapters that's being edited by Chad McIntosh. Uh, And so that would be a resource where these issues could be more uh, deeply explored.
0: For more, go to
2: reasonablefaith.org.